Uh, I hope you've got your Bible handy. We are going to work through that passage in 2 Corinthians again, so uh, keep it handy. As, uh, as James said, he, uh, he perhaps found it a little bit challenging to prepare the kids' talk. It's one of those passages that I reckon we could spend probably a term on, and I've got to cram uh, maybe six sermons worth into the next 35 minutes. We'll see how we go. Uh, so we're going to work hard today. Look, the Christian life, the call to be a Christian, is an invitation to unparalleled privilege. To be offered eternal life by the living God, to be welcomed into his family, to be given all the blessings of heaven in Christ Jesus, is truly remarkable. But that's not all that the call to the Christian life is. The call to the Christian life, the call to a life of service and of sacrifice, is also an invitation to discouragement, to difficulty, to sorrow and to pain and to grief. All you have to do is stop and think for a moment about the brothers and sisters in Christ that we knew who once walked beside us and as it turned out were very shallow soil or were very rocky soil and now no longer walk with the Lord. You stop and you reflect upon those for whom you poured yourself out hours upon hours, tears and pain and sweat. You laboured over them to see them grow into maturity in Christ only to see them make decisions that lead them into sin. The Christian life can often end in despair. And while it's certainly true of all Christians, it's especially true of ministers. I don't think that you would find a minister who's just one year out of whatever training they've done, who hasn't already had their heart broken in some way, shape or form, who hasn't already seen the effects of sin, who hasn't already experienced those that they love walking away from the Lord. I want to read a letter for you, Um, and and this is by way of example. I think this captures beautifully uh, and very powerfully how ministers feel at our lowest. Here is a sense of what it feels like. And I, I want to tell you this by way of sharing that sense of despair. Dear Jim, I'm through. Yesterday I handed in my resignation to take effect at once. This morning I began work for the land company. I shall not return to the pastorate. I think I can see into your heart as you read these words and behold, not a little disappointment, if not disgust. I don't blame you at all. I'm somewhat disgusted with myself. As I look back across 25 years, I can see some lives that I have helped and some things which I have been permitted to do that are worthwhile. But sitting here tonight, I am more than half convinced that God cannot use me as a minister. If he could, I'm not big enough. Or brave enough to pay the price. Even if it leads you to write me down as a coward, I'm going to tell you why I quit. Throughout these years, I have found but a few earnest, unselfish, consecrated Christians. I don't believe that I'm specially morbid or unfair in my estimate. So far as I know in my own heart, I'm not bitter. But through all these years, a conviction has been growing within me that the average church member cares precious little about the kingdom of God and its advancement or the welfare of his fellow man. He is a Christian in order that he might save one soul from hell and for no other reason. He does as little as he can, lives as indifferently as he dares. If he thought he could gain heaven without even lifting his finger for others, he would jump at the chance. Never have I known more than a small minority of any church which I have served 
to be really interested in and unselfishly devoted to God's work. It took my whole time to pull and push and urge and persuade the reluctant members of my church to undertake a little something. They took a covenant to be faithful in attendance upon the services of the church, yet not one out of ten ever thought of attending a prayer meeting. A large percentage seldom attend church in the morning and a pitifully small number in the evening. It didn't seem to mean anything to them that they had dedicated themselves to the service of Christ. I'm tired. Tired of being the only one in the church from whom real sacrifice is expected. Tired of straining and tugging to get Christian people to live like Christians. Tired of planting work for my people and then being compelled to do it myself or see it left undone. Tired of dodging my creditors when I wouldn't need to if I had what is due me. Tired of the vision of a penniless old age. I'm not leaving Christ. I love him. I shall still try to serve him. Judge me, judge me leniently, old friend. I can't bear to you lose your friendship. Yours as of old, William. Now I wonder if you've ever reached that level of despair. As you've looked around at the Christian life, as you looked at yourself, as you looked at others and you've just felt, well, why go on? I wonder if that wasn't the level of despair Paul was in. I mean, just stop and think for a moment about his circumstances. This is where we finished last week, if you remember, in chapter 2 and verse 12. I went to Troas to preach the gospel, found that the Lord had opened a door for me. He's in the midst of this exciting ministry. The gospel is going out. People are being saved. This is what we want, right? This is it. This is the moment. It's happening right now. But I still had no peace of mind. I couldn't find my brother Titus. I said goodbye and moved on. Not because of them, but because his heart was in despair about the Corinthian church. I wonder if this letter mightn't have been something that Paul couldn't have written. The Corinthians in their shallowness, in their sinful pursuits, in their indifference to their gospel, in their outright rebellion against Paul, were just breaking his heart. Now, I want you just to realize for a moment how encouraging that is, just in and of itself, that Paul was in the midst of despair. If you're thinking to yourself that you're doing it tough and you are the only one, even Paul went through these kinds of times. There are no such thing as super Christians. If you ever see like a, a missionary who comes to visit and share or you're at a conference and you're, you're like the conference speaker is up there. Oh, maybe for some strange reason you're even tempted to think that way about Joe and me, right? And you're like, they are amazing, right? Nothing ever happens. It's not true. It's not true. Life is hard for all of us. No such thing as a super Christian. And Paul was the same. And what I want to turn to now is what is it that Paul did? In the face of that discouragement, as he's looking at the Corinthian church and he's just at his wit's end, what is happening to them? What does he do by way of lifting his sights again and persevering and enduring through these difficulties? See, Paul wasn't like William. Paul didn't throw in the towel, right? Hard pressed, but enduring, perplexed, but not giving up, he says. And I want to tell you what he doesn't do in the face of this difficulty. He doesn't navel gaze. You know what navel gazing is? You're just like looking down. It usually involves some sort of mumbling. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. 
Woe is me. He doesn't get bitter and angry. He doesn't turn on them. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't leave. Man, he could have just gone, you know what? Stuff you guys, I'm done. What more do you want? Didn't blame others. What does he do? Paul looked up. Paul remembered the unparalleled privilege of being a Christian. And I want to show you those privileges. I've got five of them that we're going to draw out from the first little part of our passage here. Five things. See, it's incredible that in the midst of this despair, the very next words in verse 14, thanks be to God. That he can somehow turn from the discouragement that's happening to him and say, no, you know what? Thanks be to God. Why? Well, here's the first reason why. Thanks be to God, firstly, because of the privilege of being led by a sovereign God. The privilege of being led by a sovereign God. Thanks be to God who always leads us. Just reflect on that for a moment. The sovereign God, the one whose plans are never thwarted. The one who has all power and all will and does accomplish what he sets out to do. That is the one who leads us. He goes before. I was trying to think of a, of a picture. Now, I thought of the GPS for a little bit. And like, you know, it, it kind of tells you where to go. I don't think that works. I think better is the snow plow. It's not telling you where to go. It's just carving the path for you. I mean, does snow plows don't really work for us. We don't have snow. But you've seen a snow plow, right? Great whooping big thing on the front of it that just throws the snow sideways. And all that's left behind it is this perfectly clear, straight path. The sovereign God is the one who leads us. How is it that you will find strength and joy in the midst of what's going on? You need to remember that privilege. You need to have your confidence set firmly in the God who is good and the God who is powerful. Now, if, if you're discouraged, please don't get lost in your circumstances. Don't get lost in what's happening around you, the difficulties that you see. Instead, what you really ought to do is check your privilege. You, you ever heard people say that? doesn't matter. People use it in a very different way to what I'm going to use it. Check your privilege. Remember... Who it is that is for you. Who it is that goes before you. Who it is that clears the path for you. The first privilege that Paul remembers is that we are being led always by a sovereign God. The one who is involved in every detail of your life. But that could be bad, right? You could be led by a sovereign God who's leading you to doom and destruction. Instead, the second privilege that Paul reflects on is the privilege of promised victory. Right, again, verse 14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. How cool is that? What a picture. Right, it's the, it's the, 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 the parade after the victory. It's the, the ticker tape, right? The confetti is flying, the bands are playing. We're like, hey, hooray, this is great. Right, we are in the convoy of the king who will and has won. Listen to how Paul describes it just at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, from the very end, he writes this. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. <laughs> Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, what are you to do in that knowledge? Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. We are already on the winning side. Pick a game, any game, sport, board games, video games, whatever you want. All of them have milestones, things you have to achieve along the way. Right? Rugby, you've got to be the person who carries the hand heg the furthest and gets it over the line the most. If you're playing a video game, you've got to be the person who zaps things the most and then wins at the end. If you're playing a board game, you've got to be the one who doesn't flip the table. right? Whatever it is that it takes for you to win. Now imagine for a moment a game where you are losing every moment of the game. You're getting trampled, you're getting beaten up, you're failing. But you know that the final boss, the last card to be played, the final try, the winning goal, whatever it is, has already been played for you. You have already won. It may suck right now. There are some board games that are horrible. You didn't expect me to be talking about board games, right? You thought it'd be Joe and Joe. No, I'm going to do it, right? There are some board games that are just the worst if you are losing along the way. They're boring, let alone painful. That might be your life, but you've won at the end. Victory is promised. It is certain. The sovereign God who leads us is the one who gives us the win. The final enemy, the biggest boss, the biggest bad guy, death itself, defeated and eternity guaranteed. Where does Paul find his courage in the face of despair? He looks up, he remembers the privilege of being led by a sovereign God, the privilege of being promised victory. Thirdly, and quite astonishingly, he remembers the privilege of being influencers for Christ. You and I get to influence other people for Jesus. Again, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. We, we, we get to be the aroma that wafts and permeates everywhere. There's a, there's, a, there's a rather well-known aroma in our house. Uh, it, it happens most mornings. Uh, as, as young Oliver, who's still in nappies, proceeds to do his morning ablutions. Uh, it, it's, it's not necessarily a pleasant aroma, but it is most definitely a permeating aroma. You can try and escape. You can go to another room. It'll follow you. You can go to the lounge room, it'll still be there. You can go and hide in the bathroom where all that happens is the extractor fan just sucks all the more of it in. You cannot get away from this aroma. It lingers. That's what we get to be. <laughs> Maybe not poo, but you, you know what I'm saying, right? The, the fragrant, like, like, I mean, let's go perfume. That's nicer, right? You, you just put one little drop on. And it goes everywhere. You, you ever been walking down the street and you get those beautiful flowers? That just You may not even be able to see them. But you walk along and you're like, oh, what is that? That's good. And then you've got hay fever and it's all bad. But anyway, right? It, it just smells have this way of getting everywhere. We get to be influencers for Jesus as our lives go out. Now, mind you, it's a fragrance that depends on the smeller. That depends on the person that encounters it. It can have two different effects. Look down at verse 15 
We are to God the aroma of Christ, both among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. See, as the gospel goes out, as we live out Jesus and proclaim his name, as we speak to those we know of the Lord Jesus, it always achieves its purpose. The gospel is never powerless. When you have that conversation with someone and you, you, you're very tentatively and a little bit afraid and you, and you share something of your faith with them and they really just don't seem to care and don't respond at all, it's not that you failed. That conversation was not a useless conversation for the gospel will always achieve its aim and it will either save or condemn. Now we pray, we yearn, we ask God that it might save. But in its condemnation, it is also doing its work. See, we, we get to be a little bit like durian. Uh, jackfruit, you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? The, the stinky fruit? Anyone, anyone ever experienced it? Isn't it not the same? I'm going to run with durian then because I know that's what it is, right? Anyone, anyone encountered durian? Pat, do you like it? The smell? Right, there it is. Apparently this fruit, you smell it and it stinks. There are countries where it is illegal to take this fruit on public transport because it smells so bad, right? It's, it's, it's like it's foot cheese, right? It's, it's just like this ugh, ugh, horrible, horrible smell. And to most people, you come across that and you're like, this is horrible. This week, I heard that somebody likes the smell. Right? They, that they really enjoy it. They don't like the taste. It's back to front. We are like that. As it goes out, there will be a bunch of people for whom it really is the smell of life itself. What is I want it. That's amazing. Can I have that? And others who will smell it and think, this is rotting flesh. I want nothing to do with it. The gospel always achieves itself. It's like sun on a tree. right? Very simple. Some branches, life. Other branches, burns it to a crisp. But what a privilege that you and I have, that we are used by God, that we are that aroma that goes out, that we are the ones who take the gospel of the Lord Jesus out. And it gets even better because that privilege is not only the privilege of being influencers for Christ, but it's the privilege of pleasing God in Christ. We get to please God. Look at verse 15. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. God smells Jesus in us. It pleases God that we are like his son, that we take the gospel out. Paul will write in chapter 5 and verse 9, he says, we make it our goal to please him. This is the Christian life, the desire to please God. And what a privilege, what a privilege that you and I can somehow please the Lord God Almighty. Paul remembers the privilege of being led by a sovereign God, the privilege of being promised victory, the privilege of being influencers for Christ, the privilege of pleasing God in Christ, and fifthly, the privilege of having the very power of Jesus behind us. Look at verse 17. Unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. We don't corrupt the word of God. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. 
See, we, we, we don't have to operate by our own power. If it depended upon me to transform you somehow by this gospel, I, we, I, I, don't, I don't know that I could. I mean, you'd end up going down one of the many paths that people seem to end up in, maybe promising you riches and success. That'll, that'll bring you in the door, right? Maybe I need to create an atmosphere where I can target your emotions and manipulate you. Maybe, maybe I need to have the lights and the sounds and the fog machine and the, whatever it might be that will... But we don't need to do that. For the power we have is not our own, but it's the power of God himself, speaking as those who are before God. Can you imagine that? Just, just picture for a moment that person that you're praying for, that they would come to Jesus, whoever it is that you're praying for. Imagine the next time you're having a conversation with them about God's stuff, right? And now picture that God is standing next to you in that conversation. Does it change anything? I remember at more College, they send you out on, on mission each year. And one of the things you often do on missions is you go door knocking and, and trying to just talk to people about Jesus. And they'll usually send a kind of a novice with someone who's a bit more experienced in it. And, and right early on in the piece, you, you go, I'm the novice and you rock up and you, you, you want to have a go at it. So you go and you knock on the door and you're kind of trembling. And, oh, what's going to happen? Right? You, Hi. And you start to fumble some words out and it's all going horribly wrong. And then the experienced person takes over. And you're just like, oh. Man, it's good. Listen to them go. And they're like, conversation and blah, 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 and Jesus. And next thing you know, they're like, do you want to pray the prayer? And they become a Christian. And you're like, wow, that's so cool. Now you're, you're standing having this conversation with a person, and it's God himself standing next to you. You think that if you stuff it up, he's not capable of fixing that? Do you think that as you speak, it's not his word that is going forth? And at the point where you're like, I'm done, he's like, it's okay, I got it. I got it. It's all right. We speak as those whom God is with us before him. Now, of course, it puts a bit of pressure on, doesn't it? Because he's there. You want to make sure you're being faithful to his word. Don't start making stuff up. But we speak as those sent by God. You are a royal ambassador with the greatest kingdom in the history of humanity backing you up. Who cares what they think, what they might do to you? Whatever they can throw your way, you have the armies of heaven behind you. <laughs> what a privilege. But you know what? It kind of leaves a question then. Who on earth is equal to such a task? That's the question Paul asks. We skipped over there, verse 16. Right To the one we have the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Who is equal to such a task? Who is up to being the very aroma of Christ as the gospel goes out? To be the one who speaks as the one who stands before God, sent by God himself. Who is up to that? Are you? Do you think of yourself as somebody who is like, yes, oh yes, it's me. I'm the one. Ha, I'm the man. I'm the woman. I'm the child. That children have confidence, right? Let's do it. Or do you look at yourself and you think, what? what? No. How am I possibly going to be competent? In fact, Paul says he doesn't consider himself confident. Look at 3, 5, chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. You look at yourself and you go, I am weak. Yes. I am incompetent. Yes. 
I'm not equal to this task. Yes. But, Paul finishes that sentence, our competence comes from God. So in the end, Paul was equal to this task. He, he has a very Aussie moment at the start of chapter 3. All right, you know what us Aussies are like. Who's the one person you will never talk good of? You never talk up, you never speak well of. Who is it? Yourself, very good, thank you, right? Yourself, you, you're not allowed to. It's just, you listen to American preachers and they're like, oh, I'm amazing, I'm so good. And you're like, where's the opposite? Like, oh, that guy's weird. Like, who would it, right? I'll talk Joe up for you in a moment. But I couldn't possibly use myself as an example. Paul's like that. He's like, chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend us? Do I, really? Do I, do I have to talk myself up here? Do I have to show you that I am the one who did this? Do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He doesn't really want to defend himself, but he kind of has to, right? There's these false teachers over in Corinth who are casting doubt upon the whole thing, casting doubt upon Paul. It's like, all right, fine. You want, to sh- you want me to show you that I am equal to this task, that I am competent, made competent by God? Here is my proof, he says. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, Known and read by everybody, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You, you guys want me to somehow commend myself to you with a letter? Really? You guys want me to rock up and, you know, I've, I've, I've studied the right degree at the right college. I went to the right churches. I did my traineeship at the right place. Because what are you guys talking about? You know me. Your hearts show what I have done. My heart bleeds for you. What letter do we need? You are Christian because of me. Now, what's the point? The point is this. If you're ever looking for a new minister. Now, there's a couple of ways that might happen. You might, be, you might be looking for a new minister here. At some point, that's going to happen, right? I pray that it'll be a very long time, but it, it, right? at some point it's going to come. Or it might be that you are looking for a new church. And as you're looking for a new church, you are essentially looking, what, what's the minister like, right? And here is two things at the very least that you ought to look out for. The first one is this. Does that person have a reputation for godliness? Do I need to commend myself to you, Paul says? Why on earth would I need to? You know my life and my ministry. You know my heart. You know what I am like. I don't need someone else to come and tell you about how good I am. You already know it. And secondly, look for a minister that has a transforming ministry, who has preached the word of God faithfully, such that it is written on hearts with the Spirit that God has been at work. I mean, can you imagine for a moment asking Joe today for references? To be like, ah, Joe, not quite sure that you're the right guy. Do you mind, have you got a letter maybe from one of your past churches? Or um, would you mind just showing us your, your, your degree from more college? Can we see? What a dumb request, right? You know what he's been like. It's in your hearts the gospel work that he has done among you to see you saved and grown and matured and built up and serving. How was it that Paul was so utterly confident? Because it wasn't himself, it was God's strength. See verse 4, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. 
He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. It's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to think that you can live the Christian life your own way, by your own strength, that you can minister in your own capacity and competence. We must live in humble dependence on the power of God. And look, it's good to be trained. It's good to be equipped. It's good to be, right, have all those things and learn the tools and the rest of it. It's a good thing to do. But if you think that you can fight sin on your own, you will fail. If you think that you can sacrificially love your neighbour on your own, you will fail. If you think that you can love God above all else on your own, you will fail. If you think that you can somehow evangelise and see men and women saved into the kingdom of God on your own, you will fail. No, for it is God who makes us competent. It is his strength that we rely on. And he's made us competent of ministers of a new covenant. Competent for a glorious ministry. Now look, this last little bit of the chapter, uh, I reckon we could do a whole sermon series on. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm going to try and condense at least four sermons worth into the next two points. Right, I'm just going to tell you two points. We're going to work through the whole thing properly. Um, maybe you can spend the next month reading through it. Here's the th- two things I want to tell you from that second last little bit in chapter 3. The first is the difference in glory between the old covenant and the new. The difference in glory between the old covenant and the new. Here's what I mean. The old covenant was set up in the Old Testament. It was the covenant that God wrote as laws and he chiseled them in stone. You might remember Moses? Remember that story? He used to go up the mountain and what did he come down with? Ten Commandments, big stone tablets, right? literally chiseled in stone. And it was a covenant that was about sacrifice, a covenant about ritual. And it was a covenant that brought death. That's what it brought. Because it showed people how sinful they were. How would you know that it's wrong to kill someone? Unless God says to you, don't murder. How would you know that it's wrong to want what someone else has? Unless God says to you, don't covet. How would you know that it's wrong to tell a little white lie? Unless God says to you, do not bear false witness. The law brought condemnation because it showed sinners how sinful they really were. But here was the point of it. This is what it was supposed to do. You were supposed to get so depressed, so down on your chances, so clear that you were stuffed, that you would trust God. That you would turn to him in faith. And say, I have nothing. I've got nothing. I stand before you condemned under the law. Help. That's what I was supposed to do. There's a couple of examples of that happening in the Old Testament. Remember Abraham, right? His faith was credited to him as righteousness. He stood before God and said, I've got nothing. You want me to, you want me to offer, sacrifice my son to you? Have it. I've like, got nothing. The Old Testament only ever brought death. And yet it had a kind of glory. It showed us what was to come. A shadow, if you like. We, are, we, we, we got to go to Cirque du Soleil this week. Anyone, anyone been to Cirque du Soleil before? You, 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 a couple of you, right? If you have, it's a circus, okay? In case my French is horrible. Um, and it is, gee, it is amazing. It's, it's a no animals circus. It's just people. But the people are 
just, they do things that humans should not be able to do. It, it, like, I can't describe it any other way. And there was one point in the show where, where there was some aerial things going on, doing those twisty, turny things that they do that are really very cool, right? And you, you're kind of supposed to be watching them. But the way the lights were set up, it reflected, it, it, it cast a shadow of them doing their twirling pirouette things onto the back wall. And even the shadow looked amazing. You could just watch that and be like, wow, you really got a sense of what was happening. But if all you watched was the shadow, you missed the point. The point is what's happening right in front of you. The main game, the thing that's going on. The old covenant was the shadow. It had some glory. But compared to the real thing, the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus written in his blood, not on stone, the covenant of grace, which was about his sacrifice, the covenant that brought life. For in the end, this is the covenant that we place our faith in. The old was the shadow that pointed to the new. So much greater glory. And here's the point. We are saved by grace through faith alone. That feels very appropriate to say that sentence. We just had Reformation Day. Saved by grace through faith alone. See, if you think for a moment that you can find salvation under the law, that you can somehow by works earn your way into heaven, you're going to fall short. By obedience to the law, nobody is saved. And I wonder if this wasn't part of the problem for the Corinthians. These new teachers are coming along and saying, oh yes, Jesus is great, and you've got to have the Jewish things as well, okay? You, you, we're right. You can have Jesus, great stuff. Uh, just, let's just do the ritual washings, just in case. Yeah, and, and maybe a, the odd sacrifice, just occasionally. Let's, let's just do a little bit. I mean, be, being saved for free without doing anything, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, you couldn't possibly. Of course you can. That's the gospel. Saved by grace as a gift. Look at how Paul puts it right down at the end there in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. While Moses was up the mountain talking to God, his face would shine, it would glow. And he's like, I don't want to freak people out when I come back down the mountain. So he'll just go, I mean, it'd probably freak us out, right? Dude walks in with his face lit up and says, like, I'm going to put a veil over it. But, verse 14, their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains. When the old covenant is read, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Someone said to me after 8 o'clock, they were sitting down the front, and they said, when I read that, they, saw, they felt like turning around and looking at the congregation and going, whoa, for you glow. It's not a glowing of the face that requires a veil over your head. It's a glowing of the heart where the veil has been taken away such that the glorious grace of God has transformed you. It has achieved in you what even Moses with his bright face couldn't do. Transformed by grace. How much more glorious is the new where every one of us shines of the kindness of God. 
as we show the glory that is his in saving sinners. So we bring right back to where we began. The marvellous, unparalleled privilege of being in Christ. Friends, are you doing it tough at the moment? Are you discouraged, perhaps even despairing? Then look up. Look up. Remember the glorious covenant that we have been called to. A covenant of grace. A covenant of forgiveness. A covenant that will last. The old covenant only lasted until the new came in. The new will last for eternity. A covenant by which you have been saved and are even now being transformed from glory to glory. A covenant in which you get to participate as we take forth Christ, the very aroma to those who are saved and to those who are perishing. The covenant that we have been made competent to participate in by God himself. If you feel weak, just just remember that. It's okay to be weak. It's not your strength that matters. It's God's. And remember the privilege as we walk in triumphal procession, led by the sovereign God himself, as he uses us to spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of our weakness, you are strong. In the midst of our despair, you give us what we need to endure. We thank you for the privileges that you have poured out upon us, undeserved. Part of this glorious covenant that you have made with us, the promises that you have made and that you keep. We ask, Father, that with our eyes set firmly upon you, you would strengthen us for endurance. That each one of us would go from here determined to be yours, to live yours, to be shaped by a deep desire to please you in all that we are and in all that we do. Amen.